So welcome, welcome back to Enlightening Conversations. Uh, the Saturday part of it. We had a really wonderful beginning last night. Lots of rich conversations going on both in here and out in the hallways and then where we're staying and so on. And uh, we hope very much that this continues, that you continue to ask honest and open questions and especially that there is curiosity and cross-pollination between the disciplines that are participating here. Uh, and so we will be continuing pretty much in the same kind of format with this panel as we did last night. Uh, but before I introduce the panel and before we begin officially, I want to take a couple of minutes in silence, uh, silent contemplation of our concern for what's happening in France with the terrorist attacks and all that is unfolding right now in France. So let's take a couple of minutes of uh, silence. Thank you. It's always um, <clears throat> very sobering and concerning when uh, these kinds of events happen uh, in our human societies and uh, an indication also of um, the effects of idealization and splitting. And so a very good example of what happens when something's idealized and something else is split off and you have to find the bad object uh, because something has been idealized. So um, as soon as everybody is seated, then uh, we'll begin. I still see a few people missing. Is Shinzen out there somewhere? Shinzen's coming in a while. Shinzen's coming in a while, okay. Not that I have to keep track of Shinzen, <laughs> but. Uh, <laughs> okay. Um, so this morning's panel is The Ethics of Human Freedom, and uh, it will be chaired by Paul Fulton, whom I'll introduce in a minute. Just want to remind you that when you come back from lunch today, you will be going into a small group which is going to be co-led by a psychoanalyst and a Buddhist teacher. And in those small groups, what we hope will happen is a continuation and a deepening of the conversations that we've been having. In that format, perhaps you'll feel freer to ask questions that are maybe, you know, the kinds of questions you wouldn't want to ask in the whole group or questions that uh, come up in that kind of environment which is a little bit more intimate. Uh, and your co-leaders will begin the conversation with each other. And so they'll be talking to each other about uh, what is of interest and concern for them at this point in the day. And uh, I believe the small groups last an hour, an hour and 15, is it an hour, Megan? an hour and 15, and then there's a break and you'll come back for the final panel, which will be led by Dr. Caper, Robert Caper, which is on disillusionment as a path to enlightenment. So um, it's on the other side of the idealization piece, which is the disillusionment side. Uh, and before I introduce Paul then, uh, Megan's gonna bring us up to any details that uh, we need to remember for the rest of our schedule today. Okay, so 
And is it clear about small groups? So everybody knows where they are and which groups they're in and so on. And if you, the post, there is a list outside by the registration. There's a list of the rooms and the numbers. And then the co-leaders are also on your program material. So I, I think it's clear. I hope it's clear. Okay. Um, so, Dr. Paul Fulton is the co-founder and former president of the Institute for Meditation and Psychotherapy. He's also the course director for IMP's year-long certificate program in mindfulness and psychotherapy, and he is part-time clinical faculty at Harvard Medical School. A student of Buddhist psychology for over 45 years, he received his Zen Jukai initiation in 1972. Dr. Fulton earned his doctorate from Harvard's Laboratory for Human Development, writing a dissertation on the nature of the self among American Buddhists. Hmm. Um, he's co-editor and co-author of Mindfulness and Psychotherapy and contributing author to Buddhism and World Culture, Mindf Buddhism and World Culture, Mindfulness and the Therapeutic Relationship, Wisdom and Compassion in Psychotherapy, and Begegnung von You can skip that. All right, I'll do the, I'm not good at the German. But anyway, there is something there in German and uh, other volumes. Uh, and if you want to know more, you can look at his website, which is paulfulton.org. Paul so, Paul Fulton, please take it away. Good morning, can you hear me? Is this on? Yeah, it's on now. Good. Well, good morning. I'm happy to see everybody here. Um, I'm kind of excited about this morning's panel because I think that uh, last night's conversation really uh, beautifully set up this conversation. I want to begin it with just a very brief story from when I was a trainee at Cambridge <coughs> Hospital. A friend of mine was being supervised by one of the um, senior faculty who will remain nameless, and he told the story about how uh, during his time at Cambridge Hospital, he would be paid by the hospital, but he was simultaneously seeing private patients during hospital hours and billing for it. He was basically double dipping, and he felt guilty about it. And he told my friend and colleague that he went into psychoanalysis, and as a consequence, he no longer felt guilty about it. <laughs> <laughs> So this raises so many questions. <laughs> but uh, in our planning for this conference, we had laid out a number of seed questions. Uh, among those are to take up ethics in terms of the power dynamics that exist in groups and relationships as they impact human freedom and enlightenment. Um, to raise the question about the ethical underpinnings of psychoanalysis and Buddhist practice and how do they relate to freedom from suffering? I think this is really a rich question because we might ask whether ethical conduct is uh, a consequence of understanding or a prerequisite for understanding or both. How can trust break down in the therapist-patient relationship or the relationship between uh, a teacher and a student and uh, the communities of psychoanalysis and Buddhist teachers? How do we repair trust when it has been damaged? 
and also the tendency of psychoanalytic communities to fracture based on what Freud called the narcissism of small differences and the tendency of Buddhist communities to produce the dynamics of being an insider and an outsider. So you can see these, uh, these questions uh, stated in your packages. Um, but uh, building on last night, there was also this, uh, the, the question of whether um, ethical conduct, well, it's not even a question. Ethical conduct is a, a frame that makes it possible for people to enter into treatment, into psychoanalysis, and enter into meditation practice with some confidence of safety. Indeed, it is that expectation of trust and safety that makes this work possible. But as an analysand or as a yogi, can we expect ethical conduct then? Um, what, what is our reasonable expectation given that our analysts and our teachers are, of course, utterly human? Um, and the last reflection I'll just mention, uh, which uh, our speakers can uh, feel free to ignore entirely, <laughs> And that is to, to think about ethics not as a kind of a result exactly, but rather as a practice. That is, most of us know what is right and wrong. The issue is not that. It's rather in that moment of temptation, the willingness to do what is right, to exercise restraint even when it is inconvenient to do so. When our impulse is to cut a corner, to speak harshly, to take something that is not ours. How do we learn to bring our conduct into line with our understanding, and what's the role of that uh, for our own well-being? So with that, I'm going to uh, turn things over to our first speaker, uh, uh, Frank Summers. Uh, Dr. Summers is a psychoanalyst in practice in Chicago, the author of three books and more than 60 papers. Uh, he's received a number of awards, including uh, the Gradiva Award, am I saying that correctly? Gradiva, yeah. Gradiva for um, his book, The Psychoanalytic Vision, The Experiencing Subject, Transcendence, and the Therapeutic Process, which was um, named the best psychoanalytic book in 2013. Uh, recipient of the Hans Strip Award for Contributions to Psychoanalysis and the Distinguished Educator Award from the International Federation for Psychoanalytic Education. Uh, past president of the Division for Psychoanalysis uh, of the APA, a professor at, the, um, at Northwestern University's uh, Medical School, a supervising and training analyst at the Chicago Institute for Psychoanalysis and the Chicago Center for Psychoanalysis, associate editor of Psychoanalytic Dialogues and a member of the editorial board of Psychoanalytic Psychology. Most recently, he has written on ethics, so I think he's very well positioned uh, to make a contribution today, and he's going to be addressing, by way of um, defining a term, the role of ethics in psychoanalytic practice. Thank you very much. appreciate the introduction. Uh, this is quite a challenge uh, to uh, discuss uh, ethics and psychoanalysis in 10 minutes. Um, uh, uh, so I'm going to get right to it. Um, Traditionally, I'm sure you all know that uh, ethics and psychoanalysis uh, was based on uh, the superego, which is what I call an ethic of imposition. The idea being that one is born with the drives, one has to tame those drives, and the superego is the mechanism internalized in an individual which controls the drives and therefore makes one ethical. What I'm going about to say is, in my belief, that in contemporary psychoanalysis, the foundation of ethics has completely shifted. There is a sea change in what is ethical and how 
uh, one becomes an ethical person. Once psychoanalysis moved from the drive theory to object relations, relational, interpersonal, when you have that kind of practice as contemporary psychoanalysis is, okay, one has a different view of the origins of the psyche. Okay? Um, in the contemporary view, and this is substantiated with a lot of empirical research, um, we look at the infant and the infant's actual conduct with the caretaker. And what we find is that the infant is built in, born with the desire, not of the drives, but of the desire to connect to the other, okay? And is born with dispositions. Now here is where I take issue with um, some of the um, contemporary views that people say, well, we are born with affects. And I don't think we are born with affects. We are born with affective dispositions. And to me, that is a critical difference. And the critical difference is that one is born with dispositions which do not become affects, do not become full psychic states unless recognized by the other, okay? And here is what I call the Hegelian turn in contemporary psychoanalysis. The origins of the idea that the resonance of the caretaker with the infant come from self-psychology, they come from Winnicott, and the notion is that the caretaker has to resonate with the infant states, and that's what brings the infant out, okay, and allows development to occur. But what's missing there is that the infant has born with affective dispositions which do not become full psychic states unless recognized by the other. Now here's the Hegelian turn. If that other resonates with the child's affects, okay, that does not yet mean that that is going to bring out the subjectivity of the child because the caretaker is seen only as a source of gratification or frustration. And if the caretaker is seen that way, then only that way, then that leads to the splitting that we talked about so much last night, okay? What makes the difference is if the child is able eventually, through a series of developmental stages, to see the caretaker as having a subjectivity of her own. When the caretaker is seen as a source of subjectivity, then and only then can the child win the child's own subjectivity. Now the reason I'm saying this here in my discussion of ethics is because one then does not become a self unless one sees the other as having a subjectivity in her own right, okay? One makes, has to make contact with the subjectivity of the other. So the self and the recognition of the other as respected for their own subjectivity are two processes that are not just intimately connected, but that are interrelated. They cannot happen without each other. So the notion of the self in psychoanalysis is tied to the ability to see the other as having their own subjectivity and respecting the other as an experiencing subject like oneself, okay? So a successful psychoanalysis, we always say, we hope that the patient gets beyond the splitting, gets beyond the um, idealization that we talked about and recognizes other people as subjects in their own right. But you see, that, that is a requirement for becoming the self, for winning one's own subjectivity. So when we think in terms of the development of the self, and in psychoanalysis, the self becomes a person who has an agency, who has a sense of oneself that I do things, and I am a person who can contribute to the world. That does not happen unless others are seen as subjects in their own right. Therefore, 
the ethic of psychoanalysis is about the experiencing subject, not just of oneself, but of the other, so that one cannot separate what is ethical from what is a successful psychoanalysis. Okay? I hope I'm making that clear. I'm not sure if I am. But the point I'm trying to make is that the, in contemporary psychoanalysis, there is now an ethic of inclination as opposed to an ethic of imposition. The superego is an ethic of imposition. An ethic of inclination means that one desires to do good for the other. Why? Because that is how one wins oneself. Only if I see you as a subject, if I recognize you, okay, and appreciate you for who you are, can I become a self. That is how I win who I am, okay? So the ethic of psychoanalysis has shifted, in my view, from an ethic of imposition to an ethic of inclination, and the development of the self that we try so hard to work out in psychoanalysis cannot be separated from seeing the other, okay? as respected for who they are, for what their own subjectivity is, okay? So one has to make contact with the other subjectivity to win who I am, okay? And if that does not happen, then the self does not develop, okay? And instead, one has to look for substitutes, and that's where the splitting occurs. That's where one then, instead of becoming a person with a sense of self and agency, one has to do other things to try to gain some sense of, of who one is without actually becoming a self, and that's what splitting is. Splitting is a perversion of self-development. It's derailment of the self, okay? And so that's what is not only pathological, but unethical, okay? Only if one does not see others as subjects in their own rights, only if one is split in which others then become only objects of either my gratification or my frustration, can I blow up restaurants in Paris, okay? In order to blow up restaurants in Paris, I have to believe that who I am is good and superior and other people do not count. They do not count as subjects in their own right. They are not part of the human experience. Only I am, okay? And that is the source of ethics and psychoanalysis, and that's why a successful analysis means the development of the self, which means an ethical practice with regard to other people. Am I over time here? No, you're good. Okay, Go good. On. Okay, so, um, so what I'm saying then is, in psychoanalysis, what we try to achieve is a sense of my own experience is one as who I am, okay, so that there is a sense of agency. Okay? Agency only takes place if an other who is seen as a subject, has to be seen as a subject, recognizes me as a subject. Okay? And then I can believe that who I am matters and I can make a contribution to the world. But the other is always seen then as equal to me in the sense of respect for and recognition of their own experience. Okay? When that does not happen, Okay? If this analysis is not successful, if the person is brought up with a sense of the others are only there for me, okay, or not for me, okay, then that's where we get the kind of rage and hatred that can lead to destructiveness. Okay? I do not believe that the rage and hatred that we saw in Paris yesterday are inborn affects that everybody has. Okay? I think those are a product of the lack of su sense of subjectivity. If I do not win who I am, 
okay? If others who are not seen as subjects, then I am left with all sorts of tensions and experiences that are not brought to fruition, okay? And I look for ways to discharge those, okay? And that leads to the frustration that results in the kind of hatred that we saw yesterday, okay? That's where unethical practices of every time take place, okay? So um, what, what I will leave you with then is the foundation of psychoanalytic practice is a foundation of ethics and only of ethics. There is no such thing as a successfully analyzed person who is not ethical, okay? Those are not just intimately related, but those are really the same thing, okay? And so the lack of ethics that one sees so much of in contemporary society, I think is basically a product of people not seeing others, whatever it is, whether it's killings, whether it's stealing, whatever it is, it means that Others are not seen as part of the experiential process equal to mine. They are seen as objects of either my gratification or frustration. They're either all good or all bad. They're idealized or they're devalued, okay? And when one takes in an object that is idealized or devalued, there is always the other side to it. But it doesn't matter. You can flip from idealization to devaluation, from good to bad, it doesn't matter. Okay? There's simply two sides of the same coin, okay? And so both of those are the foundation of an unethical practice and someone who does not have fully developed sense of self. Okay. That was really good. Thank you. Thank you. Good. Wow. Good. So, um, thank you, Frank. Wow. <laughs> Uh, so the next speaker is Christopher Ives. Um, Dr. Ives is a professor of religious studies at, at Stonehill College, focusing principally on Zen and ethics, most recently with attention to the Zen precepts and Buddhist approaches to nature and environmental issues. His publications include uh, The Imperial Way Zen, uh, Ichikawa uh, Hakugen's Critique and Lingering Questions for Buddhist Ethics, he co-edited Zen, Awakening, and Society, The Empty God. Um, the edited volume, Divine Emptiness and Historical Fullness. Uh, a translation of uh, Nishida Kitaro's An Inquiry into the Good. A translation of uh, Critical Sermons of the Zen Tradition. Uh, I will not try to um, pronounce the original author's name. Uh, he is on the editorial board of the Journal of Buddhist Ethics, uh, serves as co-chair of the Buddhist Critical Constructive Reflection Group of the American Academy of Religion, and Dr. Ives will address the issue of the precepts in Zen practice. Thank you, Paul. Well, first of all, when we talk about precepts um, in Buddhism, or specifically in Zen, um, we have various forms of Zen in Asia and in the West. Uh, we have different sets of precepts, and we also have varying interpretations of the precepts. Um, as many of you know, the core Buddhist precepts throughout Buddhism are the five precepts. Uh, historically, these are received or undertaken um, in an attempt to refrain from five types of actions, specifically refraining from harming living beings, uh, refraining from taking that which has not been given, in other words, stealing, uh, refraining from sexual misconduct, refraining from false speech or lying, um, and refraining from intoxicants that cause heedlessness. 
Um, and there are other sets as well. Um, upon initial ordination, a man or woman will receive another five to get up to 10. Um, upon full ordination, a person will then receive um, two to 300, depending on the monastic code under which they're practicing. Um, when you get over to East Asia, you have a set of 58 bodhisattva precepts. Uh, the great Japanese Zen master Dogen had a set of 16. Some of you may know Thich Nhat Hanh and his group, the Order of Interbeing, uh, they have 14 precepts, which they call mindfulness trainings. Um, and when you look at early Buddhism, the way the precepts were worked with is very much in sync with what Andy Olensky was uh, sketching last night. Um, the precepts are seen as constituting a kind of ethic of restraint. Um, restraining the unwholesome or detrimental external actions that are based on those unwholesome or detrimental internal mental states, uh, which Andy was referring to as toxins, um, the poisons, for example, greed, ill will, and delusion. And to a large extent, the precepts are functioning as part of the process of first holding our external actions in check. Um, and I always find it interesting when you look at Indo-European languages, the term yoga and the term yoke, like in yoking a horse, have a shared derivation. Uh, so in a sense, what you're doing with the precepts is reining yourself in, if you think of equestrian metaphors we use for trying to get our act together, um, and reining in you know, that external uh, set of behaviors, like killing, stealing, et cetera, that are seen as external manifestations of these unwholesome, detrimental mental states, these toxins, like those three poisons. So in other words, the precepts function um, as one part of the overall purification of the mind that Andy was talking about, the kind of hygiene, um, that transformation of the mind uh, that's so central to many forms of Buddhism. Um, when you get to Zen, um, as some of you may know, Zen began in the sixth century in China, uh, developed over several hundred years after that during the Tang Dynasty. Um, Zen emerged in a specific um, Chinese cultural and intellectual milieu. Um, you have Zen emerging in some respects as a dialogue between the Mahayana form of Buddhism, which as many of you know is the Buddhism of Tibet, East Asia, and Vietnam, um, interacting with Taoism. Uh, you also have certain Buddhist doctrines like Buddha nature, um, original awakening, sudden awakening, uh, the Tathagata Garbha, which is the embryo or the womb of the Buddha. Um, and when Zen emerges in this context, what they start doing is reinterpreting the precepts and saying what they're really doing is showing how to express this innate Buddha nature. Myo Zen was talking last night about how, you know, in large part Buddhism is trying to get, or certain forms of Buddhism are trying to get people to realize that, you know, at some level I'm already awakened. Um, I'm already a Buddha. Um, it may be covered up. There are different ways of thinking about it. But, you know, deep down there's an awakened being inside of me. Um, and to some extent, when uh, Zen in that um, intellectual milieu where people were talking about original awakening, Buddha nature, these new ideas in the history of Buddhism, um, a lot of Zen teachers early on appropriated that philosophy and then started thinking about the precepts as a way to express that awakening within. Um, or in some respects is thinking the precepts as indicating how an awakened person acts. This is how a Buddha acts. He doesn't kill. He's, he's basically compassion. He does not steal. He is generous. Um, and so what you get is a shift from the precepts being a way to purify the mind to the precepts being a way to express the pure mind you already have deep down. Um, in other words, what you get is the precepts shifting from being somewhat prescriptive to being descriptive, 
describing how a Buddha acts, or another way you might think of about it is they're shifting from being prescriptive to performative. You can sort of perform, be Buddha-like um, in acting this way. And this is especially the case in the Soto strand of Buddhism. We don't need to get into you know, distinctions that much um, in our 10 minutes. Um, but what that means is historically, and I'm mainly thinking about Asia, as you'll see in a second, a lot of the shifts when Buddhism hits uh, Western shores. But through a lot of the history of Zen in Asia, um, you have this sense of the precepts being um, a performative, expressing your awakening, this is how a Buddha acts. Um, and so what you don't get is people working with the precepts as maybe many of you in the room have or um, people you know have, which is okay, and I think this came up last night, I don't know if it's your comment, Josh, but um, yeah, maybe the precepts have a function as kind of a reminder, okay, these are ways in which sometimes in my external actions I don't have my act together. Um, they're a way to kind of have a rule of thumb. Again, there are many ways people talk about the precepts, but a way to, you know, basically, you know, monitor my behavior. Okay, uh, maybe I am kind of doing white lies or getting a little loose with my sexuality or my communication. Um, but in East Asia, they weren't worked with that way in terms of here is a set of guidelines, ideas, you know, benchmarks for me to kind of work with in terms of my own behavior, my relationships, my spouse, the monks, whatever. Um, again, it, it's historically much more performative. Um, and what this means is um, when you get to certain um, Zen communities, um, the Zen master as this charismatic authority figure is often viewed as um, someone who is not necessarily working with the precepts to keep polishing his awakening, or I'm, I'm gonna put it in male language because I'm gonna get into uh, the scandals here and it's overwhelmingly male Zen masters. Uh, but he or she is not necessarily working on their stuff, using the precepts as a way to kind of get their act together, but rather um, the attitude is often, yeah, the, the Zen master is not necessarily working with the precepts that way, the Zen master in his or her action um, is expressing awakening. This is awakening activity, awakening Zen, awakened Zen function right before my eyes. It's almost magical. And you know, in terms of psychoanalysis, we can get into a lot of things having to do with projection and authority and assumptions about the, the wizardry of your really skilled therapist and their knack or their intuition and you know, all of that. Uh, you know, I'm not a therapist, so I should stop using words like projection and transference, but I think it's very relevant here. Um, and so there's idea, yeah, the Zen master is manifesting this. And then there's one other wrench in the works, and that's the Buddhist idea of compassion. Um, in various Mahayana texts and in Zen texts, there's allowance if the person has compassionate intent and some savvy, some wisdom to accompany the compassion, it's allowable for the person to break precepts. So you might tell a white lie to keep the Gestapo from finding Anne Frank in the room in your factory. Um, or you might have a drink with someone if that's the way to really be with them and hear about their suffering. You'll have a beer with them or something. Um, that allowance for the precepts if there is um, compassion intention and presumably wisdom as well. Um, and so what you get is this perfect storm of the enlightened Zen master is my you know, authority figure, he or she, is expressing awakening, maybe in some mysterious, magical ways, and I need to cut them some slack, because if they do something that seems to be a violation of the precepts, it could be an expression of compassion. Um, and this, as you can imagine, sets the stage, um, not simply for the Zen master, if he doesn't have his act together to do certain things, 
But in terms of the aftermath, some of the things that Polly was referring to yesterday, um, how it is that um, a person like the Zen master might rationalize what he's done, or maybe a therapist would rationalize a certain transgression as, oh, no, this is enlightened behavior, or I'm not held to the same standard as my students. They've got to follow the monastic code and the precepts, but I'm expressing my great awakening. Um, and then in terms of the students, it also contributes to what we see, which is um, the enabling, the denial, or maybe it was enlightened you know, functioning when he you know, groped that woman's breasts in the one-on-one -on -one interview. Maybe there was some mysterious savvy where they knew that she had some you know, body armor or something. I mean, you get all these sort of twisted um, you know, rationalizations, notions that it may be okay. And then you can imagine what that does in terms of trust, the aftermath, processing this, et cetera. Um, let me just conclude by saying, um, in the West, a lot of this has shifted. Um, a lot of people are working to the precepts a little bit more like early Buddhists did, uh, using them as guidelines, certain standards to hold themselves to, thinking about their own personal behavior, the personal behavior of people in their congregation, um, and also doing more social application of the precepts, thinking about how they might apply to the climate crisis or sexism or homophobia, racism, um, terrorism in places like Paris. Um, and so what you get now is um, a broader um, way of working with the precepts as guidelines, not just simply as um, an expression of awakening. And you see this just for example, and I'll stop here, uh, with Thich Nhat Hanh's 14 mindfulness trainings, very much um, hammered out in the crucible of the Vietnam War, um, and really thinking about these guidelines in relation to ideology, forcing your opinions on others, conflict, oppression, and violence. So, um, that kind of application of the precepts to society, to my own life, getting my act together, didn't happen so much in East Asia historically, <laughs> though people are working with the precepts that way now. Thank you. Our next speaker is Dr. Malcolm Slavin. Um, Dr. Slavin is um, on the teaching and supervising faculty of a number of analytic institutes, including the Massachusetts Institute for Psychoanalysis, where he also formerly served as president. Uh, he's the director of the International Association for Relational Psychoanalysis and Psychotherapy, a council member of the International Council for Psychoanalytic Self-Psychology, associate editor of Psychoanalytic Dialogues, Contemporary Psychoanalysis, and the International Journal of the Psychology of Self. He has authored a number of works, including uh, The Adaptive Design of the Human Psyche, Psychoanalysis, Evolutionary Biology, and the Therapeutic Process, and papers including Why the Analyst Needs to Change Toward a Theory of Conflict and Negotiation in the Analytic Process. Dr. Slavin will begin by addressing uh, the place of ethics in mental health from a psychoanalytic perspective. Okay, what I'm going to do is tell you a brief story um, because I think the question of morality and ethics is quite embedded in this story. I'll try to tease out a little bit of what I see in it and ask you to certainly reflect on the dimensions of the Buddha and of awakening that I think may be quite implicit in it. I'm going to tell a story because I guess I, I do deeply believe what Elie Wiesel once said, which was, uh, God made humans because he loves stories. Huh. I call this story Lullaby on the Dark Side. It's about uh, Noah 
a little boy of six years of age, and his mother, Sarah. Uh, his mother, Sarah, is an analytic patient, or was an analytic patient of mine, and the story entails really the three of us in interaction over a period of many months. Noah was terrified of going to sleep. He couldn't often go to sleep because he was deeply afraid that uh, monsters would appear, that he'd be stolen away, that he'd die in the background, terrible fears of death. He could not relax into sleep. During the day, he was uh, often watching television, reading newspapers, reading magazines, all of the kinds of things that all too vividly last night, I think, appeared uh, in our consciousness. Uh, his mother would repeatedly try in a very loving and caring way to approach him, saying, we, we're strong parents, we love you very much. Your life is not really dangerous in the ways that you're reading and talking about all the time. She would repeatedly do that and approach him in that way. He continued being terrified. No, there was no obvious trauma in Noah's life. There was no significant disruption in the family or te obvious tension or conflict or breakdown in his familial environment. It was a relatively, quote, normal family. And yet he, he continued to feel terrified. At some point in analysis, we talked this over and Sarah uh, Sarah talked a lot with, uh, with her husband, with Noah's father, and they realized that a lot of what Noah was seeing on television and magazines and newspapers was terrifying them too. It was an aspect of life, it was a reality of life. And that uh, somehow her reassurances that we're strong parents and we love you and the world is really not so terrifying was violating his experience. And she went back to him and she said, I've talked with dad and I realized there are things that we see too that we don't want to see about the world or we've gotten very used to about the world. You're seeing them fresh and new and they're terrifying and they are terrifying things about the world. Well, he still became, uh, he still was very frightened of going to sleep. He still uh, remained uh, wakeful and uh, afraid, but he listened a lot more to Sarah. He became somehow interested in listening to her. Some time went by, and uh, again, um, he, Sarah approached him further, and uh, when he was expressing one night his to these continuing terrors, she said, we're strong parents. Remember, we're strong parents. We love you very much. We're with you. Yes, the world is dangerous, but we're with you. And he says, to her then, but mom, you love yourself more than me. And she says, no, 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 parent, parents love their children more, more than themselves. Parents, good parents, and we're very good loving parents. And he says, yes, I know you are. They love their children more than themselves. And then he says, but mom, I love myself more than you. <laughs> and she says, oh, yes, yes. Uh, children, children are supposed to love their parents and love themselves more than their parents. That's good. It's good for you in, in life. He continues being terrified. We come back. We discuss this a lot more in analysis. She talks about it with her husband. 
she comes back at some point weeks later in, in, in their conversation. She said, you know, I realized, Noah, something you were saying about loving yourself more than me and me loving myself more than you. I think you were really talking about the fact that a lot of the things that I do and Dad do, does in life are things we love that are not you, that are apart from you, that take us away from you. My going to school, she was in school then, my going to work, Dad, your sister, many things in the world that we love that are not you and that you're feeling that all the time. Things that we love about ourselves, our own needs that are not you. As she's talking about this, he seems to relax tremendously. And the whole episode of night terrors and being unable to sleep relaxes and for a long, long period of time, I don't know, it's many years later if that recurred, but that episode came to an end. What's this story about? For me, this story is very simply about two universal human terrors, uh, paradoxical terrors, uh, terrors that take a paradoxical form in human experience. One is the terror of mortality, of finitude, of loss, and inevitable suffering that goes along with that, that is embedded in all of us in an innate and universal way from conception onwards. It's very much in children. And it, the paradox of it is that the acknowledgement of it and the recognition of it in many ways allows us to transcend, if we want to use that world, but, word, but to deal with that reality in a different way from idealizations and denials of it. And that uh, there's something ennobling, even beautiful, about the transience of life, the limits of life. Life takes on more meaning and beauty. The second paradox here is the paradox of otherness, difference, conflict between individuals in even the most loving, close, connected relationship between Noah and his mother. The paradox of difference and otherness. Otherness, not only the otherness of the other and their needs, but the otherness within us, the multiplicity and otherness within us and the multiplicity in the other that Noah was extremely attuned to and that over time I think Sarah and I came to see and appreciate in him. The other thing I think I hear in the story is the crucial need for a receptive, caring, attuned and empathic other, but the need to achieve that kind of receptiveness and to give it the need for a reciprocal opening in the other, in the caring other, in the parent, in the teacher, in the psychoanalyst to re be receptive and open to their own multiplicity and otherness and to their own terrors of mortality. Application to psychoanalysis, the application is, I think, for me, three things I found stand out. The wisdom of the, uh, the, the child, the traumatized other, the patient, the wisdom in the person who's acutely suffering, the appreciation of the wisdom and truth that's embedded in their suffering, not just the distortions or misunderstandings or projections or so-called pathology about it, the deep appreciation of that. Secondly, the capacity even in a very young child, and especially in a young child but in a student, uh, 
and in a patient to probe and pull for those elements of conflict and of terror in the other and in pulling for them to open the other into that kind of reciprocal, uh, receptive and empathic role in its deepest sense. And then thirdly, the capacity in Sarah and in an analyst and in a teacher to survive that probing through an opening, to survive it in some sense intact, but deeply influenced and in some way changing in the process of survival. That survival is not simply surviving intact and the same. That's, for me, the story. I, I appreci would appreciate anything that you guys hear in terms of awakening uh, and, and enlightenment in it. I see it, for me, it's a story of uh, awakening in order to go to sleep. <laughs> Thanks. I feel like I've uh, sat down to a very rich meal here. <laughs> uh, so our, our last speaker is Josh Bartok. Uh, Josh is Dharma heir of uh, James Ishmael Ford um, Roshi. Um, and Josh is a Dharma, he is a Dharma heir of both, in both the Soto Zen lineage of uh, Jiu Kennet and also in the Cohen tradition of John Tarrant. Um, he is the abbot of the Greater Boston Zen Center in Cambridge and a guiding teacher of the Boundless Way Zen School. Uh, Josh has also had a career as the editorial director of Wisdom Publications where he was the in-house staff editor for almost 200 books on all traditions of Buddhism, including many on the interface of Buddhism and psychoanalysis. He is the co-author with Ezra Beta of Saying Yes to Life, Even the Hard Parts, and the authoring editor of the recent Daily Doses of Wisdom. Uh, Josh also holds a master's degree in mental health counseling and works as a Buddhist pastoral therapist. And he's going to speak about the place of ethics in enlightenment. So to begin with, I want to uh, say that the place of ethics in enlightenment is very central. Um, and uh, it is, as we've heard, it is a practice. It is, not a, uh, in, in, it is not an automatic expression. But I want to return to the story that Pali introduced to us uh, last night of Bodhidharma. Bodhidharma went to the emperor of China, the emperor of China who loved Buddhism and who was following the teachings that the way to support Buddhism, the way to express your uh, commitment to liberation is to build temples and support the Sangha. And so Bodhidharma comes from India, which to the Chinese was the land of miracles. And, uh, and the emperor says, so, so I've built all of these temples. Tell me, how much merit have I gained? And Bodhidharma says, no merit whatsoever. And the, the emperor is stunned. And, and, and he says, who is this person confronting me in this way? And Bodhidharma says, I don't know. And the emperor is stunned into silence. And Bodhidharma departs. There's a second half of the story where the uh, emperor's chief minister says, does your, does your majesty know who that was? Uh, and uh, the emperor says, no. 
and the, the minister says, that was the very embodiment of compassion. And, uh, uh, and so then the emperor is overcome with regret. He says, well, we got to get him back in that case. Uh, and uh, the minister says, you can send all of the horses and all of the ships in search of him, but he will never return. So this, I don't know as the starting place, as the very expression of compassion. This is what uh, we were hearing yesterday from Polly as, as the, uh, the, the ground of humility. This is uh, the uh, acknowledging our vast potential for blindness, our vast potential for harm. And as we uh, heard from, from Shinzan, uh, Shinzan and, and others, there are many, many vectors of causality impinging on this moment. And it is impossible for any of us to definitely know. And this definitely knowing, this is a kind of, uh, uh, righteousness, uh, or we might call it delusive certainty, which is a functioning of the mind of, uh, of ignorance. There are three main ways that we create and experience suffering, according to Buddhism. By pushing away, which is called uh, uh, aversion, and one expression of that is anger. By grabbing on, by trying to hold on, grasping or greed, and by uh, delusive certainty, righteous certainty, um, uh, also known as ignorance or delusion. Um, and this not knowing is the essential starting place uh, in, in my tradition of Zen, which comes in the, 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 the 16 uh, precepts uh, school coming from Dogen, as Chris mentioned, and those, uh, Christopher mentioned, and the, 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 those, uh, the, the additional precepts there are the three refuges, taking refuge in the fact and capacity and possibility of awakening, which is the Buddha, taking refuge in the fact of interdependence and community, which is the Dharma, uh, and, uh, which, is, uh, which is the universe itself, uh, which is the universe itself and the teachings of oneness, which is the Dharma, and the fact of interdependence and community, which is the Sangha. And then there are the three pure precepts, which precede the ten grave precepts, the five, uh, the five do nots uh, that, that that, that Christopher alluded to, and, uh, and and several more, but the three the three pure precepts. The first of them, in in, in my tradition's presentation of them, we say, not knowing, thereby giving up fixed ideas about myself and the universe, I vow to take up the way of ceasing from harm, or ceasing from evil. It is by not knowing and giving up fixed ideas about myself and the universe, that we begin to take up the way of ceasing from harm. The second uh, precept is uh, to do, the second pure precept is to do good. And this, the, these, these uh, two pure precepts uh, kind of in a certain way point back to what Andy introduced to us last night. A and the third pure precept is to save all beings. This is the essence of the bodhisattva way, to uh, save all beings throughout space and time. Uh, and this is uh, 
uh, on the one hand, utterly impossible, and on the other hand, of utmost necessity. Um, so, and, and, what's, uh, and what's, when we first receive the precepts, uh, it's called jukai, which is another one way of translating that is reveal, revealing ourselves as the precepts. We receive and we give and receive the 16 precepts. Uh, when we ordain, the thing that we're ordaining into is the 16 precepts. And when uh, we are authorized as a teacher, as a lineage holder, uh, empowered to speak with the voice of the tradition, the thing that is transmitted to us in, the Dharma, in Dharma transmission is the precepts, the 16 precepts, again. And when we, uh, and, uh, and in an important way, you know, we, we, uh, we heard from, from Stuart yesterday about uh, suggestion and, uh, these are the suggestions. The precepts, in a very important way, are the suggestions of generations of Buddha ancestors, of people just like us endeavoring to cause and create and uh, suffer from less, ex uh, less suffering in the world, to cause less harm. These are the top 16 ways uh, that uh, the tradition suggests to us that we should follow. In, uh, in my tradition of Zen, the, the precepts aren't commandments. And, and in a certain way, they, they are, uh, the, we can imagine them to be uh, preceded by, uh, you know, you do whatever you want, but you may find, as I have, that actually by not killing, you will have less suffering. Um, so, and uh, the, the precepts are suggestions, are guidelines, you know, and they also function as a kind of mooring line. So in, in, in Zen, we, we speak, and in Mahayana Buddhism, uh, following uh, Nagarjuna, generally, we ha uh, speak of two truths. This is the both and that we heard reference to. And there's the perspective of the absolute, the one, the empty, and the perspective of the relative, the many, the form. And these two perspectives are simultaneously and paradoxically contradictorily true. They are actually just one truth, but this one truth is two things. And our practice in Zen is enlarging our heart's capacity to be able to hold these two simultaneous truths and pour ourselves flexibly uh, between them in the service of saving all beings throughout space and time in the service of not knowing, thereby giving up fixed ideas about myself in the universe and in the service of doing good. There is such great harm that can be done, A, by righteous certainty, uh, as every war ever is an illustration of. And, and then in Zen, uh, and this is actually uh, Christopher's area of expertise in a certain way, uh, there, what, what happened in samurai Japan is a misapplication, the samurais who were Zen Buddhists, uh, is a misapplication of the rules, the, uh, the rules of the absolute to the realm of the relative. And, there's, and, and it's essentially saying that there is the truth that there is no fixed abiding self. There is no self. All forms are fundamentally empty. 
This is completely true and inarguable from, uh, the, from Mahayana Buddhism. But the samurai said, and therefore, I can kill you with impunity because there's no you and there's no killing. See, it all works out. That is a, uh, and this, this is the, uh, the uh, essence of, um, uh, of the kind of abuse of the, the, the relative. There's one more piece that I want to point to in that taking up these 16 precepts as practice, an essential element is atonement. Uh, the etymology of atonement is literally at one moment, being one with the big mess, the calamity that we make. The precepts following the precepts, uh, following the bodhisattva vows, are like, is like being guided by the North Star. We don't get to the North Star, but by returning our attention to it, we can become oriented and thus can navigate our way through uh, through the dark woods. And so we aspire, we fall short because we're human and we atone to acknowledge that this is the mess we made and here is the place we must start and we again return our attention to the aspirations of the North Star, to the, uh, to, to the, uh, to, to the precepts, to the bodhisattva vows to save and serve all beings throughout space and time and then we fall short, we atone and this entire triangle is the practice of uh, this bodhisattva human life. <laughs> So, uh, this was a lot. <laughs> uh, there is so much uh, on the bone here to be taken apart. I, I'll make just a, a very brief comment and then I'm going to throw things open for conversation among the panelists. But um, I was trying to keep track of the various ways uh, rep, uh, that we understand ethics as described by, by the panelists. This is not a comprehensive list, but among the things that I heard were ethics as an expression of our own awakened nature, whether or not it is realized. That is to say, we're awakened, we cannot do any kind of harm at all because it is our nature. A second is to regard ethical conduct as a developmental accomplishment, provided one has somehow um, had an adequate childhood free of undue um, injury. A third, which was not discussed but only alluded to, which is this notion of ethics as being uh, a product of the superego coming out of drive theory, a kind of, an a, kind of a compromise uh, in the face of uncompromising drives. A fourth is that we can regard ethics as something undertaken purposefully in service of our growth toward awakening, part of our uh, purposeful practice. A fifth is the commitment um, that ethics are a commitment to serve all beings out of compassion, despite uh, or perhaps because of our not knowing. And then also I like the North Star analogy that ethics are something that are fundamentally aspirational. So I think there were other subtleties that I may have lost in this, in this brief summary, but um, uh, we, we take the importance of ethics as almost axiomatic, and yet it is remarkable the variety of ways that we can understand it, even within one of these traditions. Um, so with that, I, I would like to just um, invite comments uh, from the panelists to, to one another. <coughs> Yeah, one thing I'm wondering about, I mean, it's, it's maybe a theme all weekend in terms of psychoanalysis and Buddhism, some of the things that came up last night. 
in terms of how they fit, both in terms of ethics and in terms of what being forms of transformative practice. Um, so for example, last night we were talking about, you know, no self and, you know, in a sense we're getting the issue of do you not need to have a sort of, you know, well glued together sense of self or that subjectivity in relation to others mm -hmm. internally or externally or having a mm -hmm. sense that that's a subject, I'm a subject, I'm seen, I'm respected. Um, and for Buddhism, and, you know, many forms of Buddhism will say, yeah, unless you have that kind of ego, you can't really get into talking about losing it mm -hmm. or else it can get very dangerous. I mean, I've heard Zen masters in Japan say, unless you're pretty stable, intensive Zen practice can be really dicey if you're someone who's, you know, I don't want to get clinical, but struggling and, you know, mm -hmm. disassociating or, you know, whatever kind of, you know, diagnostic category you'd mm -hmm. fit in. Um, and so the question then is sort of, um, and I, I'm just sort of going to ruminate here and maybe open up, you know, ideas rather than offer my own, but I wonder in terms of, you know, Shinzen, I don't know if he's arrived, but he was talking last night about, you know, awakening in part being not being there, sort of attached to the mind-body thing, but it seems like to some extent what you're talking about is how psychoanalysis, how healthy uh, emergence of healthy subjectivity is in many ways getting a sense of I'm a subject in relation to internal and external others or a subject with other subject. Um, and would Buddhists come in and say, okay, that's a good preliminary step. Mm -hmm. Now we can talk about losing that self. Mm -hmm. Or I can imagine other Buddhists coming in like, does that not set you up in a kind of uh, epistemological duality? Here's myself, here are those others, you know, the mm -hmm. mother that respects me. Um, would Buddhism say, okay, that's getting you rolling, but that ultimately has to be overcome. Mm -hmm. um, or for example, when you're talking about you know, that certainty, part of that certainty is not just I'm right and my opinions you know, hold water, but sometimes the certainty is that sense of being, sense that I am a fixated self that needs to be protected. You know, I have some sort of soul or something permanent. Um, and so I just wonder uh, you know, how psychoanalysis and that subjectivity you're both talking about squares with Buddhism. And then the other thing, you know, this gets to the larger question of how do the two fit together? Is one preliminary to the other? Do they complement each other? Um, Polly and I were talking, you know, this morning about, you know, what Buddhism could really learn from psychoanalysis. And again, I'm, this is going to be my stab at it, so forgive me if it's real pop psychology. But, you know, a lot of the talk, you know, the Jungian shadow, um, things like, you know, projection. I mean, a lot of Zen centers, after the scandals they've had, could really use a really savvy psychoanalyst to talk about, you know, repressed emotions and projection and the shadow. Because Zen doesn't really have the, you know, the technology to deal with that. And so often after these scandals, you know, how can we come to terms with our individual egos and sort of the collective psychodynamics or ego of the group? Um, you know, often, you know, Buddhism doesn't have those resources. So in that sense, maybe Buddhism needs psychoanalysis, at least in terms of crisis response <laughs> or management. Um, but maybe it's part of the path as well. Um, you know, there is something about, I mean, there are Buddhist equivalents to the unconscious and what bubbles up out of it and, you know, in certain types of Buddhist philosophy. But um, anyway, those are just rambling thoughts in terms of, you know, how do these two things in the room this weekend fit together and complement or in tension with each other? So. Well, thank you very much for, for raising those issues because it gets me, gives me the opportunity to say what I was about to say last night when we ran out of time uh, because this issue came up then too. Like, uh, psychoanalysis is talking about building the self and Buddhism is talking about giving up the self. And 
Um, I think that's a very tricky issue. We have to kind of watch our terminology very closely, and I'm not saying I have the final answer to it, but I have some responses to it. And my response to it that I was hoping to get in last night at 9 o'clock was the, the issue is not the self. It's the reification of the self. Those are two different things, okay? And in psychoanalysis, if the self is reified, that is a pathological condition. That's where things get dangerous. ISIS reifies the self. They reifies who they are, okay, as the superior form of being. Therefore, everything else has to be wiped out, okay? That's the kind of, that's the ultimate danger. Now, that's an extreme form of it, but one sees more subtle forms of it every day in American life. We can see it right here, okay? When, when we talk about the importance of not knowing, Okay, well, like when Josh was talking about not knowing, okay, um, I, I can understand that and I can say, yes, I can resonate with that as an analyst. You know, what sort of certainty do I have, right? But yet, to say there are all these forces, there are all these causal arrows, and I can't know all of them at one time, that is a certainty, okay? So in expressing not knowing, you are saying you know that, okay? How do we ever get out of that, okay? You feel you know certain things and say that you don't know, you don't know certain things, but you know others, okay? Um, I think that is a contradiction. I'm not sure how one liberates oneself from that. Um, so the, the, it, when one reifies the self, they, I have many patients who reify the self, and I have other patients who do not have a sense of self, okay? So when you talk about Buddhism and you say, well, you know, we try to give up the self, okay? Do you know how many patients I have who would give their eye tooth, who would do anything in the world to have a sense of who they are, to have a sense of self? And there is nothing more painful than to try to exist in a world in which you have no sense of who you are, okay? You have no sense of agency, of being able to control or influence your own fate. It's one of the most painful conditions one can have. And I have many patients where our entire goal is to work toward developing a sense of self where one can feel like I am here, okay? And I am a person, okay, in the world with other people. Embedded with other people, but separate in the sense that I have my own source of subjectivity. So when you talk about the importance of transcendency, my, I'm shamelessly brought a copy of my recent book, The Psychoanalytic Vision. <laughs> And flyers here, anybody who wants a copy can grab one. And there is one chapter on the ethics, okay? Um, and I shamelessly did that because I, I'm not going to pretend that I don't want to promote my ideas. I do, okay? And I have a self. This is myself. Pardon? <laughs> I, I, didn't, I haven't gotten there yet. I haven't gotten there yet. Um, and, you know, um, Paul said I've written three books, actually I've written four. It's, it's confusing the way this uh, paragraph was written. The three books on object relations series, this is the fourth book. It is a, a culmination of a lifetime of thinking about these ideas and trying to get past all the theories to use them, but get past them in the sense that I think psychoanalysis is now a worldview, and that's what I'm trying to bring out here. And it is a worldview in which everything can be talked about. And if everything can be talked about, then we can all respect each other, whatever the issues are. When you stop talking, you start hurting each other, okay? And when analysts stop talking, they start hurting each other too. And so getting back to the issue of self, okay? 
in order to be able to get to a kind of what you call liberation of you know letting go, okay? I, and I, I have studied Buddhism a little bit, but I'm, I'm a pop Buddhist, like you're a pop psychologist, okay? Um, I know there is a sense of in which one wants to give up the self. The way I hear that and read it is, what you're giving up is the reification of the self. You're giving up a sense of certainty that I am some sort of entity here, okay? Last night, I think somebody talked about, I'm sure I think it was you actually, uh, you were talking about how, um, you know, I'm one person here, and then a couple hours later, I'm a different person, so I'm not the same person, okay? And, okay, good, okay. And when I, you see, when I hear that, I don't hear that you're not the same person, okay? There is a continuity, a temporality of being, okay? Which the phenomenological philosophers have brought out to their eternal credit, okay? Husserl. Heidegger, I hate to mention the, the word Heidegger now that we know he was a Nazi, but his ideas are so poignant for everything we're talking about here, okay? That temporality, which he got from Husserl and from Bergson, is the very essence of self, okay? So when you think of self as temporal, okay, you don't have a sense of a reification of self, but that it shifts and moves according to experiences. But, yeah, and, and so... <laughs> And so, um, for me, there's, there's no need to give up a sense of self. It gives up a kind of reification, idealization. And psychoanalytic theory itself has been guilty of reifications. I'll give you one example. We talk about the unconscious, okay? That is not the way I think we should talk about unconscious psychic phenomena, because it reifies as though there is an entity unconscious, okay? And there is not, okay? Any system of meaning, anything we think about and talk about, can have an unconscious level, does have an unconscious level, as well as a conscious level, okay? That doesn't mean there is the unconscious. That is the great mistake of psychoanalysis and psychoanalytic theory, which hopefully we are now able to transcend and recognize that unconscious is a process, okay? And it is all process of psychological being, which is an adjective or an adverb, but it is never to be a noun. Okay? When it becomes a noun, then we get into trouble. Okay? And, and I'll leave it at that. I yeah. appreciate that, that perspective. Josh, you and I. So there's, there's so much in that that I uh, agree with. Um, that, 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 and so uh, that the essential uh, problem is, in a certain way, uh, reification. But when, when, when Buddhists say no self, what, what we're saying is no fixed, abiding, unchanging essence of self. Uh, which means another way of saying is no reified self. One image that that uh, that we can take up for for what this means is uh, consider a rainbow. A rainbow is dependent on causes and conditions. Light coming in at a certain angle, water particles in a medium, a uh, perspective from which one is seeing that, and then uh, the rainbow arises. And it is not the case that there's no rainbow. There's definitely a rainbow. But the thing is, there is no fixed abiding essence of rainbow. And self is like that, too. Uh, and, and so in, in, in Buddhism, or in, in my tradition of Zen, we're not trying to get rid of or give up a self or lose a sense of self. We're trying to see that even in this moment, this self is no self. And so, uh, so it's, not, it's not a temporal sequence of we go from self to no self. Self 
and no self arise simultaneously. This is the uh, perspective that the Heart Sutra says, form is exactly emptiness. Emptiness is exactly form. Self is exactly no self. And no self is exactly uh, self. Um, and so, and so, so as to the question of uh, how do we liberate ourselves from the paradox of uh, uh, of of not knowing and knowing, or self and no self, for form and emptiness, uh, and the answer is by being right in the middle of it. This is not a thing to be resolved into saying the absolute is the only truth or the relative is the only truth. Form is the only truth or emptiness is the only truth uh, or first one then the other. Both of them simultaneously and flexibly in the service of all beings being able to speak from one or act from one or act from the other. And, and, uh, and the part of what the discipline of meditation does in the Zen tradition is enlarges our kind of heart's capacity to be with paradox and be with this impulse to resolve paradox without resolving paradox. Um, I, you know, it, I appreciate what everyone is, is emphasizing uh, and emphasizing for one thing about the uh, what the the enemy uh, is the reified self, but as far as I know, selves and self-experience and self-expression doesn't come with a big label on it. This is a reified version. <laughs> it's an incredibly complex thing. Did Noah's self come with it? to his mother, his self that was a, a terrified child who was about to be stolen away by monsters, the whole narrative within which he was living. Did that come with a label on it? This is a reified child self that had to be somehow deconstructed in order to enlarge his self-experience. It was an extremely complicated thing. There were elements of deep truth and wisdom in what he saw, and there was also a kind of fixed narrative, imaginative narrative, all entwined together. Did he have not enough self? Well, in some ways he didn't, because he was terrified and didn't feel strong enough in the world. In some ways he had too much self, one might say, in certain fixed, certain kinds of ways. So I just want to emphasize that, you know, when we have a term like reified self or reified anything, uh, it's much more complicated in the lived, interactive, interpersonal, intersocial context. Do, the, do does Isis have reified self concept? Well, to us they do. Do we have a reified self concept to them? Yes, to them we do. This is a clash of religions. We are modernists. Uh, um, Frank's intersubjective ethic in psychoanalysis is a religious ethic of a sort. It's a modernist religious ethic, comes from the Enlightenment, comes from the Reformation before that, comes from the Renaissance before that, comes from 500 very bloody years of cultural evolution of a relatively secular but still tolerant of religion 
ethic and culture in the West in which religion has its place but doesn't run the show with the laws and the government. Things like Frank's ethic of intersubjectivity, I deeply agree with it. I'm in it very much myself, but I do know that it is a particular cultural religious product that took 500 years of bloody struggle in the West and intellectual development, in the Christian West, to, de to develop. ISIS is nowhere near there. Do they believe that they are the moral and ethical force, that we are the corrupt and fallen ones, that what they're doing in killing is a sacred act? Yes, it's at that level that we need to deal with this, not in somehow converting them automatically to our better modernity, but to appreciating something that needs to evolve and develop, perhaps over the rest of this and maybe future centuries, and to accept, I think, the terribly frightening thought that our children, our grandchildren, and their children and children may very well be living in a world in which that struggle to transform that culture in some way so that it is compatible with something we've fought through for 500 years in the West may take place. It's a very sobering and very tragic thought, but I think it's the one that in some sense in Noah and Sarah, that Sarah was appreciating in Noah, um, in Noah's perception, who I guess it, as the weekend goes on, I tend to see n little Noah more and more as a Buddha. <laughs> if there's a Buddha, <laughs> it's, it's embodied in that, in that uh, remarkable kid and uh, some of the clarity of what he sees intermixed with the ter terrors and beliefs that we would say are, are wholly fantastic. So I won't, I just want to throw that in. I just want to respond briefly to what Mel said. I, I do appreciate you bringing the historical perspective, Mel. I think one of the most interesting things about modernity is the evolution of the concept of the self. You know, for you know, during the whole middle, uh, medieval or Middle Ages, you know, up until the Enlightenment, there was no sense of self. You know, there's no self, right? Self is an evolution of a historical process, which is what you're you're bringing out, and I think that's extremely important uh, because we all have to recognize, you know, that we live in a kind of historical cultural context, okay? And everything we think about and do is a product to one degree or another of that. Even if we reject it, it's a product of that. It's a product of the rejection, and. Um, I guess where, where I come out of that is with saying that, well, we, we don't have that religious precept anymore of that is the, the ethical foundation of our lives that's existed from, say, up until the uh, 16th century. So with the beginning of, of Descartes and the Enlightenment and Voltaire and so on, uh, you know, the, the idea evolves that there is something important about the self, about the individual. The individual really becomes a subject only in about the 17th century. So. Um, I guess what I'm trying to say here is that I think that the way contemporary psychoanalysis, as I understand it, comes out of this with the way the self evolves and the importance of the self implicated in the recognition of the other as a subject, that is the foundation for a modern ethic. Um, I'll say two things really 
really quickly. Um, I think Frank and I probably see the world very much uh, in the same ways, but I want to emphasize how psychoanalysis is an extremely diverse field. There are many perspectives and many orientations within it, so that even speaking about psychoanalysis, this or that, is easily contradicted by some other perspective that's extant, that's practiced here in Chicago, in Buenos Aires. There are many versions that really, really clash in many ways around some of these very fundamental concepts. For me, the question of self and non-self is often Im implicit and intrinsic in the psychoanalytic situation in that all patients in some way come needing to develop more sense of self, as Frank was stressing. Some terribly painfully, so who lack it, but all in some way developing a sense of their own voice, a sense of being able to articulate their own experience in a cohesive way. And at the same time, there's a whole other tradition within psychoanalysis or perspective that's always right there, which is too much self. It's right there at the same time. So there is no patient just with not enough self. Because every time we talk about repetition, every time we talk about unconscious organizing principles, no matter how primitive, that is a version of self that in some way our challenge, our task, and it's certainly far from a direct one, is to, d to destroy, to break down. Just as Noah and Sarah, Noah had to probe and in some way break down certain aspects of Sarah's self in order to open her. The process of psychoanalysis is both a simultaneous building and coalescing and a breakdown process. I think Winnicott was the only analytic theorist to almost totally hold that paradox and the way it operates. Classical psychoanalysis was generally breakdown, self-psychology is build up. Those two poles are poles that are there continuously and we can easily devolve into one or the other. Just one comment too, thinking about um, what you were just saying about the self and the 500 year bloody history of that self being kind of hammered out in the West. Thinking about some of the broader applications of the precepts recently and some of the things that Josh was saying about interconnectedness. Um, and I, I don't think you were necessarily involved in a kind of psychological reductionism in your comments about ISIS, but I also think that you know, that 500 years where that self was getting hammered out had another bloody facet to itself, which is imperialism. Um, and basically, yeah, slavery, colonialism, imperialism by those very Western sites of power that were hammering out that self, but were also hammering other human beings. So, and I'm not saying you're saying that ISIS is purely a function of an underdeveloped sense of self or lack of respect for the subjective other. Um, there could be a part of that, you know, someone was using the word cult, um, was that last night or today? Uh, I guess it was today, but um, yeah, I would also like to suggest in terms of, you know, from a Buddhist perspective, the vast array of conditioning factors that ISIS also needs to be understood in terms of a history of imperialism and slavery and colonialism um, in Africa, the Middle East, and many parts of the world. So um, I'm not saying you were ignoring that, but I just wanted to balance out your 
an interesting point. Let me just say, I, I appreciate that. It's a very crucial point, the political and economic context. But when we talk about imperialism and colonialism, that goes back a long way. It's not just 19th century, 18th century Western imperialism. There was the Ottoman Empire before that. There was the Arab conquest of North Africa and parts of Europe. That was imperialism, that was colonialism. We are all implicated in that. It's not simply a Western phenomenon. Slavery, Islam was deeply implicated in slavery and still practices it in many places in the world today, actively. So those are, that's not a simple dichotomy in which the West represents one side of that political or economic evil and the other side the other. It's much more complex. Yeah, just to respond briefly to what you're saying, Christopher. Um, yeah, I, I, I wasn't saying that you know, this is the only issue here. You know, I wasn't trying to ignore at all uh, the history of imperialism, as Mel pointed out, both in the Middle East and from the Western perspective. Um, Islam, historically, has been a religion of conquest, of growth and movement and conquest. And, you know, uh, that, that works, in, as Mel pointed out, in a variety of ways. And I'm sure and I'm, that the development of ISIS is a product of a lot of historical and cultural forces. I'm sure that it is. All I was trying to say is that what, what comes out is uh, the righteousness, the justification of the killing of other people, and that always means that one has a view of oneself as having the truth, and others do not count. They do not, they're not experiential subjects like I am, okay? They're inferior in some way that allows me to objectify them. And what, it's, what I'm trying to point out is the objectification allows one to then kill them, okay? It, it dehumanizes them. So, you know, whatever the historical and cultural force, I'm not ignoring that at all, that's what it ultimately comes down to, that they are able to do that, that that perspective has to be taken into account, that there's something in their experience that allows them to view the other in this objectified way so that they're not human. So I'm going to exercise my prerogative and responsibility as a moderator to bring it back to ethics. Um, fantastic conversation, but um, again, if I ever hope to be hired again. Uh, um, Worried about your job. That's exactly right, job security here. So um, this may be, before we go to the break, uh, an opportunity to take some comments or questions from, from the audience, and maybe we start with you. Uh, well, I thought I would uh, come back to uh, perhaps ethics a little bit circuitously, but I'm, I, everyone's talking about this issue of too much self, not enough self, subjectivity, lack of subjectivity, and I was thinking, where, where is the common ground? And actually, some of your comments, Frank, and, and some others, made me think that there's a huge common ground in analysis and in meditation practice, which is what we often talk about in Zen is intimacy, and particularly intimacy with one's own subjectivity, that both spiritual practice and psychoanalysis are very much about great, getting greater and greater intimacy with one's own subjectivity, with the person who doesn't have enough of a sense of self, painstakingly helping them find where those nuggets of self-identity are. With the person who has too reified a sense of self, it's very much helping them to see, oh, this is just one story, way of, one way of creating a story about the world, and there are all these other possible stories. So my sense is that that's where 
both of these practices really involve um, a kind of progression towards wisdom. And, and to bring that to, to ethics, so, so this, this, this moment to moment lifetime discipline of turning in intimacy towards oneself, uh, towards, uh, and, and to, towards this encounter with an other, doing, engaging in that, that practice, in that discipline, kind of allows the, the space for ethical behavior in keeping with the, the precepts and bodhisattva vows of Zen, for instance, to naturally arise. We find that then our, uh, our, uh, our uh, impulses take us in a little bit in that direction, more in that direction. We, we see by being aware of our capacity to cause harm and by being aware of, uh, of, of, of self and other in dialogue, uh, we, we start to have a capacity of choice to be able to move, uh, to, 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 move in the, to, to maintain our ethical behavior. Malcolm, I'm very glad you brought up the ethical aspects related to culture and how uh, people started coming in and talking about the history and how it fits and all that. But I think it needs to go much further than that in terms of our um, ethical evolution over the future. I'm a child of the Holocaust. I understand exactly Noah's feelings from a different perspective. I was continually surrounded by death. When you mentioned Heidegger being a Nazi, it brought on lots of history in my past that I had to deal with. I was invited to give a talk in Germany, had to go to Germany, and all the feelings of my parents and my birth and what I had survived sort of led me to reface that. And then I studied, luckily, with Thich Nhat Hanh and refaced that as I viewed terrorism. Mm -hmm. And when Polly spoke about the French today, um, the French events in Paris, I happened to be French. I realized all of a sudden that we forget the terrorists. We don't pay attention to the issues, our compassion toward them. We tend to think about the others because we're the others most of the time. And I feel that the future of human freedom really requests of us to start looking at all human beings as having difficulties with their lives and we can explain it but we really need to start thinking about that much, much more. I'd like your thoughts on that. Mm -hmm. Go ahead, Barbara. Uh, Mal, you were talking, everybody was talking about what we do as analysts or as Buddhist teachers, but I want Yes. Can we draw attention to ourselves in that position? And is it different for analysts than for Buddhist teachers? Because we too need, what, why are we doing this crazy business? What are we fulfilling in ourselves? What's missing in ourselves? I think we do need to attend to that. Am I not clear? If I hear your question for me in the, the story of Noah and Sarah, what is missing in ourselves, well, I think Noah was confronting Sarah with a lot that was missing in her, right. that was in her and missing in her, not just missing in her, but in her and missing in her. 
and that in that com probing confrontation, something had to break down to create a reciprocity between them so that she could be with him in his suffering, in her own suffering and in her, his suffering. That, that, I I, I'm not sure that if that addresses at I, all I what you mean. I just meant to say that we need to, uh, as practitioners, and I don't know whether there's a difference between analysts and Buddhist teachers, that we need to attend to ourselves also and what we find missing in ourselves. Because if we don't attend to that, that's when ethics or when integrity breaks down. Thank you. We have time for one more question from Polly before we go to break. Okay. Um, yeah, what I'd like to, to come back to are ethical guidelines. And um, I think these points are all wonderful and they're refined, they're subtle. Uh, the issues about subjectivities, I think especially the space between people. But in Buddhist practice, and my own background is in Zen and Vipassana, a little bit of Tibetan, um, are these guidelines really helping us create an environment in which we can hold the space between us, be mindful of our differences, be able to, to truly bring up questions, to discover something new? And similarly, in psychoanalysis, um, and I've been a psychoanalyst since 1986, and I'm a Jungian analyst, which is a very mm, ostracized sort of analyst, you know? It's sort of like, I'm an an I usually say I'm a psychoanalyst, then I say <coughs> a Jungian, like that. Um, because I actually feel like I'm just like any other psychoanalyst, except I have this particular beginning. I think our problem is, can we speak to each other as psychoanalysts? I mean, I think we're pretty good in our consulting rooms. I like the kind of ethic that I feel is in our field for our consulting rooms. I do not like to be at psychoanalytic conferences, and I have pretty much stopped. I, for a while, I worked with the military uh, doing leadership development, and I actually enjoyed the military much more than the psychoanalytic <laughs> world, which, which really brought up for me, what is the ethic? What is our ethic as a community? So these are questions after the break that I would love to hear you talk about. Can, could you just say so, what you don't like about psychoanalytic conferences? Uh, there are too many schisms. People are very rude. There is no speech practice. Nobody speaks kindly. People are not interested in what other people say, especially if there's a small difference, like this kind of injury of narcissism, the narcissism of small differences. I, and repeatedly, and I tried for years, and I participate in, I used to participate in larger organizations, I do a bit in small ones, but the rudeness and the uncivility and the just, the sort of breakdown products of the entire experience, they were just too much. I didn't see any kind of good coming out of going to psychoanalytic meetings if people were going to just put each other down and not really be interested. So that's the reason why I ended up more with a Buddhist thing. Um, so, you know, from, it seems like from my side, I would say uh, psychoanalytic guidelines about ourselves, our own communities. Buddhist guidelines, you know, are these good ethical guidelines for really inquiring with other people who might see something differently? So in spirit of ethics as a form of restraint, we will try to restrain our conversation to bring it back to the domain of ethics after the break. So we'll have 10 minutes uh, to do try to be back in your seat by my watch at uh, four minutes before 11, and we'll see you then. Okay, so we're back. 
a lot of energy. This is really excellent. So um, we're, we're back. Um, I, as moderator, I have two jobs. One of them is just to make sure we get along. <laughs> I think we're doing okay. And then the other, of course, is for us to, uh, to stay on topic. And as it is, of course, it's a vast topic anyway. There's a lot of room for us to slip about. Um, so we're going to come uh, right back into, yes? Okay, um, so we've got a couple, uh, a couple folks queued up to, uh, to make some comments, but so maybe we'll start with you, Chris. Yeah, I was just thinking uh, during the break, um, you know, some of the objectives for our panel, looking at power dynamics, what about when trust is broken, um, the narcissism of small differences, and insider-outsider. Um, I once wrote a piece, I call it my Tina Turner piece. Uh, it's called, <laughs> What's Compassion Got to Do With It? And it was a critical look at some of the things we're talking about today in terms of Zen and ethics, saying, yeah, for actual moral guidance historically in Japan, it's not so much the precepts, it's not so much um, compassion, but if there is an ethic, it's kind of a de facto monastic ethic um, that really ties into, I think, a lot of the issues we're looking at here today. So, you know, for all intents and purposes, if you look at, you know, what are the cues, the ethical guidelines, what's really going on in a Japanese uh, Zen monastery, you know, often what you have is hierarchy. And we could talk about, you know, sort of Confucian backdrop to Zen um, and what that does in terms of power and dynamics. Um, and as part of the uh, hierarchical organization with the charismatic Zen master, uh, the emphasis on obedience or deference um, and deference to authority. Also, uh, the virtue of perseverance, not just the pain in your knees when you're sitting full lotus, but persevering, whether it's you don't like the food, you haven't had enough sleep, someone's bothering you, there's some tensions in the sangha, you know, a kind of suck it up um, ethic here. Um, also, in terms of insider-outsider, I mean, what you get, and, you know, this is probably familiar to, you know, a lot of us, whether we're therapists or Buddhist practitioners, um, the insider-outsider dynamic where um, you have the charismatic teacher or therapist, and I'll, I'll just focus on Zen, uh, the Zen master, and the clique of senior disciples, you know, one of whom or several of whom want to be um, appointed a successor, you ever take over that institution or branch out and do their own thing. And that dynamic in terms of who are the, uh, the prized pupils of the Zen master and what that does in terms of people you know, speaking truth to power, being clear, acknowledging abuse, acknowledging certain types of behavior, uh, the people that are closest to the teacher and most able to raise those issues in some sense have a vested interest in not doing that since they want to be the insider, prize student, maybe the successor, um, receive Dharma transmission, whatever. And then just one other thing that plays in is the whole idea of indebtedness. And a lot of us talk about you know, the, the positive aspect of gratitude in terms of having a generous spirit, et cetera. And it's very interesting in Japan, um, the, the doctrine is own or indebtedness, and it's there as a Buddhist doctrine, indebted to the Buddha, to your teacher, to all sentient beings, your parents, et cetera. Um, but how that um, contributes, not to a sense of, yeah, gratitude for all these blessings that makes me feel more generous, but a sense of debt, and how could I ever repay these people? How could I ever repay my teacher for all of the teachings I received? And that perhaps subverting um, the ability to, in that complex ethical situation, especially when they're transgressions, subverting the ability to speak up. Um, you have that sense of, I'm so indebted, you know, how could I begin to give someone a hard time? And, um, you see this playing out at the you know, social level at 
points like World War II and how could I speak out against the emperor of the state when I'm so indebted to them. Um, it's kind of interesting when we talk about interrelationship and that Buddhist idea of interconnectedness and how that's an ethical resource in the Sangha with your teacher, et cetera. Often people in the West, when they look at that as a resource, they're thinking in terms of the impact of my actions, the ripple effect, and a sense of responsibility, and that's you know crucial. In Japan, often when they talk about interconnectedness and ethics, it's often all the things that I'm receiving that make me me, and my indebtedness for my parents, et cetera, et cetera, um, and it's sort of an interesting sense of receiving rather than I'm the person affecting. Um, but I think you know, in terms of the, the issues we're looking at, about trust, insight, or outsider power dynamics, all of these things are in play, at least in Japan, I think a little bit in uh, North America and Europe as well. Um, this de facto ethic of hierarchy and deference, perseverance, um, the elite disciples wanting to stay on good terms with the teacher, and indebtedness. Um, so I just want to get them out on the table as well, because I think they're really relevant to some of the things we're talking about. And then, you know, the whole question of guidelines, okay, how do you come up with guidelines when you're in a hierarchical organization and everyone's sort of deferential? Yeah, and, and related to this idea of guidelines, so I'm realizing there's a major uh, piece that, that's not here. So uh, increasingly, especially, increasingly in, uh, in Western Zen, um, th their organizations have uh, ethical guidelines which are not the precepts. The, 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 the precepts are the, the uh, kind of the spiritual approach to it, but the ethical guidelines really lay out in concrete ways what is, uh, what is expected from people in teachers' roles, what is unacceptable from pe people in teachers' roles, and, uh, and many of them, like ours, have an ethics and reconciliation committee, where, which are people that you bring your concerns about your teacher, people who are not the teachers, people who are not people in, in spiritual authority, to be able to do that. And in, 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 in Zen, there are two professional organizations that Zen teachers may belong to. One is the Soto Zen Buddhist Association of America, which now requires, as a condition for membership, that the place that you teach has this second set of ethics in the world policy. And part of what this does is it prevents, uh, it, it, it is an additional check on the the, uh, the the twisting of the the so-called compassionate breaking of precepts, uh, is saying that and you can't ever do these things. Um, so and if you seek out a, a meditation center uh, in any lineage uh, or tradition, I really want to encourage you to make sure that they have a uh, a. Uh, a set of ethical guidelines that are different from that 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 supplement the uh, the Buddhist precepts, and this is this is part of the way that we maintain safety and we don't crush that thing that uh, that that Frank was talking about last night. The way those kinds of this this is so subtle that it can be so easily destroyed by these kinds of transgressions. Yeah, I just, I know I've been told to be very concise, so I'll try to be very brief. I want to, I want to respond to, to Polly and to the gentleman who brought up uh, the issue uh, of Holocaust and terrorism and the way we forget about it, we deny it. I was watching the, the news last night, it was very painful, and, and this woman reporter was in one of these restaurants that was where the bomb went off, and she was, of course, terrified. She was lucky that she wasn't hurt, of course, but what she said was, you know, I've reported on these incidents, hundreds of incidents like this. It never occurred to me that it could happen to me, you know? And I think that was such a poignant uh, 
a comment because I think that's how we all feel. We hear about these things, but it never occurs to us that it can actually happen to us. I think that is the experience where we have to really try to, as best we can, recognize that this could happen to all of us at any time. We could be, so, we could be the object uh, of this kind of terrorism because on, only then do we really understand the dangers of the world that we live in, that we really have to come to address that and why that is and however we want to address it, and we may differ about that. But to deny it is really the biggest danger, I think. Um, what Polly said about the narcissism of small differences in the psychoanalytic um, communities, I think, is, is very poignant and very right on. Um, unlike Polly, I go to psychoanalytic conferences, but I have that same experience. Of, I get very frustrated with the way each group goes its own way, um, it talks only to itself, and says to itself, oh, we are the ones with the truth. Um, isn't it a shame all the others really don't see it the way we do? And then hypocritically says, oh, this is great. Look, we're all here. We have all these differences. And isn't it great we can all exist and respect each other? But we, they don't really respect each other. We don't respect each other. I think we have to come to grips with the fact that in psychoanalysis, each time there is a new theory, it is disrespectful of the old theory, okay? Self-psychology does not respect classical psychoanalysis. Relational theory, for all its value, does not respect self-psychology, classical psychoanalysis, or any other view, okay? It views itself as having the truth, and all the others are shamefully inadequate, okay? And we lose so much when we do that. We lose the value of each one. I'm not a classical analyst, but I appreciate what I have received from classical analysis. Uh, a few years ago, there was an issue on Freud's 150th birthday, a special issue, and I wrote an article on uh, Freud's theory of technique and its relationship to the contemporary theory, which is very different, but we all use, if you go back to the studies on hysteria, we all use that model of understanding the mind, of free associations and, and understanding the concatenations of the mind and how that tells us about the person, okay? So uh, I wanna say that the psychoanalysis is subject to exactly the critique that Polly makes of the narcissism of small differences, the disrespect of the other, and one wonders how one can try to adopt a different point of view with the patient and yet come to a conference and do exactly what we don't want our patients to do. Thank you. So I want to, you had a question, is, is that right? You've been waiting patiently since last night, I think. <laughs> My name is Nancy. I'm from outside of Philadelphia. I am going to say I <coughs> identify as a transpersonal Winnicottian, something I rarely say in public, but I think there's some people here who might appreciate it. And I just want to say, in terms of a lot of the thematics tonight and today, I want to put in a, a, a plug for the separation individuation process. Um, I would, would love to have given some of my Buddhist teachers who crossed some lines a copy of Margaret Mahler. And I think one of the gifts of the therapeutic process, which I wish I could bring to my Buddhist teachers, is that there's something that gets repaired in good psychotherapy. The, the, the client, as the child, needs to know they can disappoint the other and still be accepted. And only when I know I can disappoint you can I tolerate you disappointing me 
which to me is required for ethics that aren't just following precepts. Nicely mm. said. Grace? Thank you. Thank you. Um, I wanted to say more about um, ethics, especially in the Zen community, which has a residential <coughs> practice. So we have teachers who are spiritual mentors and are empowering their students. So this is a disincentive to speak up, as Chris said. We also have teachers who are deciding which paying jobs the students are going to have within the community. So they're their landlords as well. And they're their landlords, um, being that they decide what size of room or apartment they get based on their teaching role in the community. So you can see that what we get is a big shut-up-ism <laughs> within residential communities. That makes it really hard for someone to find fault. I know, um, personally, a young woman just contacted me. Um, she was having some stress. She reported uh, some sexual harassment, and she stayed on it. Uh, the aggressor or the um, perpetrator uh, kept his job, but she was asked to leave the community and uh, given notice to move out in 30 days at this time of year after being there for three years, dependent on the community, with uh, therefore earning no money. So you see the kinds of problems that emerge ethically no matter what kind of ethical statements we have in place that these dual, triple relationships make it really hard in the Zen community, or, um, and I suspect in other Buddhist residential communities. Another issue is that teachers within these communities, the coin of the realm is the number of students you have. And also, so um, one of the things that might interfere um, with your noticing uh, that someone uh, someone's self is becoming too dissolved or they're becoming too disoriented psychologically is the fact that you won't say to them, Buddhism is not for everyone. Maybe it's time for you to do some therapy. And because having students uh, reifies the self of the teacher and keeps the teacher uh, empowered within the community. It's like, you ha it's like a Congress. You have a number of your representatives you know, from your way on your side. So these dynamics make it really hard. I do believe that Buddhism is not a practice for everyone. And so some people who come to Zen centers are actually seeking some psychological healing that they're not getting. What they get is how do we sustain the institution rather than repair for the individual. Where does the person who was asked to move out, where does she go? another place to do the same thing? Uh, this particular case, she, I think she's learned her lesson. I actually had to, predicted that she was not going to be able to stay, that she was like a sharp object pointed at a helium balloon, and that that wasn't going to work out for her and the institution. But she is not going back, and she was begging her friends just to stay in their apartment while she found a job. No, she, she got the lesson. And I thought it was very beneficial because I have friends there who have been there for 20 or 30 years or find themselves in their 60s in the same situation, which is not, not as hopeful as this young woman. Thank you. Uh, gentleman in the back. 
Hi, my name is David, um, and I really appreciate the, the, the conversation. I, I, um, I wonder if the ethical foundations of human freedom, if, if we, um, from, the, from the Buddhist perspective, is, is there a way that this is not the splitting, maybe, that Robert was talking about, about if we're good, then we're allowed to be free. And the Buddhist perspective was to investigate the nature of mind and the nature of reality. It didn't set out to say, necessarily, I'm going to be good. He wanted to understand the complexity <coughs> that's been talked about of the human condition and suffering and what causes that. And so by investigating that very carefully, and specifically both in relation to that individual mind and consciousness, what is that consciousness, how does it relate to the outer world, there are times when that's just very much an individuated thing. Understanding of what our consciousness and our mind is led to, it both enables and creates ethical behavior. So it's not that if we're ethical, we have a chance for freedom. If we understand and engage in the samsaric nature of reality and the karmic essences, this, this not only will happen to all of us, it has happened to all of us, and it will continue to happen to all of us, the good and the bad. And what we do is that we, again, the, the conversation is so fruitful because the, the splitting and pushing away of that is so powerful. How can you not want to do that? But the investigation is really more about what is this rather than are we good and then can we therefore somehow realize something. Hmm. Yes. Yes, and yet, and yet, within the Buddhist tradition is also the recognition that uh, ethical conduct is a requirement to be able to calm our minds enough to be able to see things as it they is, are as well. It is both an enabler and an outlet. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Thank you. So I'm, I'm trying to keep people in order. You had had a, um, back here, yes. Is that correct? I put my hand down because I was like, oh, I don't know what I'm going to say exactly. But um, <laughs> wait, <laughs> give us a try. Um, so one of the things that I noticed in <clears throat> psycho schools of psychoanalysis and also in uh, my own experience of Dharma communities is a very white male presence, um, which is also here today. And I really value all of your contributions. But in terms of ethics, I'm curious about um, where the conversation about who's not in the room comes up when we're talking about ethics and how um, in Buddhism and psychoanalysis, there's both this desire to preserve institutions um, that I think is unethical because really we're concerned with liberation of all human people. Um, and so, this is a, something that for me as like a queer person and a, um, someone who walks into a room and is just like, oh, this doesn't look like my people. Like how, but then also the teachings feel so valuable for me in both psychoanalysis and Buddhism. How do I hold that and how can we use the tools of inquiry of both um, Buddhism and psychoanalysis to create that shift? 
this is incredibly important, and thank you for giving voice to it. Uh, and uh, one of the great, uh, essentially, sh shames of American Dharma is that the middle way has become kind of the upper middle way. Uh, and uh, and a lot of and, and these are these are important important questions at, that so many Dharma communities have uh, historically uh, done such a poor job of uh, of addressing uh, and. Uh, I just want to appreciate how important that is and how much I aspire uh, to, uh, to 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 uh, uh, work to, to to bring an understanding of privilege into part of uh, how what what it means to 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 do this work in the service of all beings. Um, and there, there's so much more that needs to be done. Uh, and so, uh, thank you. Yeah, I would like to speak to that also because. Um, my experience as president of Division of Psychoanalysis is that um, ethnic minorities tend to view psychoanalysis as a white upper middle class uh, profession practiced by white upper middle class people for white upper middle class people. And I, what I did is I, I developed a, a program to reach out to ethnic minorities and find that there were a lot of prejudices about psychoanalysis there. But once we reached out and brought them in, you see Division 39, which was president of Division of Psychoanalysis, you now see a very different culture there, okay? We see a lot of young people, and I would say a third to a half of them are ethnic minorities. Um, I started this scholars program uh, to bring in young people and um, set aside 20 of those uh, simply for uh, minorities. So we've reached out to ethnic minorities, um, and it's made a huge difference because many of these people, young people will say to me, I never thought psychoanalysis had anything to do to me, with me. But now I realize that this really is very relevant to my life. You know, this is something I can really use. Um, when it comes to queer people, I think, I think we've, we're there. I mean, I think, you know, once I brought in um, all the chairs of the committees and brought everybody kind of leadership in the, in the division together, and um, this young person who is uh, gay, um, said, you know what, one-third of the people around this table are gay, you know? And so I think we're there with gay people. We're, we're not there with ethnic minorities, and that's where we have to continue to battle these prejudices that exist in ethnic minority communities. But once you do, you find a lot of excitement. Uh, people, Asian Americans, Latin Americans, Afro-Americans, get very excited about psychoanalysis. Yeah. So, Robert? I'd like to, to follow up on something David Hill said, uh, and uh, uh, Paul, this, this is about ethics, but I, I need to lead into it. Uh, I, and I'd also like to say a word on behalf of splitting and idealization. Uh, it's, it's easy to uh, look at that and say, well, we have to stop that and demonize it, which is actually a form of splitting itself and easy to lose sight of the fact that in many, many situations, splitting and idealization is better than the alternative. Because the alternative is complete confusion about what's good and bad. So to have a, an artificial, uh, radical division between good and bad is better than having no idea whatsoever about what's good and bad. 
Um, the ethic um, that I think uh, Dr. Summers was talking about of respecting the other and having compassion for differences of the other is, I think, a very good formulation of the ethic of, uh, of psychoanalysis. Uh, I, I like to think of it in terms of curiosity, being curious about the other, uh, non-judgmental, uh, which goes along with simply being curious, and it's really a scientific ethic. Uh, it's, an, it's, quite, it's very much in the spirit of science, but from another perspective, it could be called compassion. And I think the two are really uh, fairly close together. to say I appreciate a lot of the talk that's happened, especially what Professor Ives said about, and um, Grace said about the dynamics that happen within the communities. I think yesterday it was really uh, aptly brought out that it's good to have sensitivity training, and as uh, Mr. Bartok said, that also uh, having ethical guidelines. But what you guys brought up is that when you have a system that's structured so that you're constantly teaching non-self in such a way that when people bring up their own personal feelings, put it all down, don't attach to it, it's not yourself. So on these like micro level voices are being silenced, which then enable and empower or actually set up teachers in a way to fail because they don't have that double feedback loop where they can hear um, where they might have blind spots. So I'm interested because when I've tried to bring up these issues in my community, what you get hit back with is um, if we start empowering everybody to have a voice, it then disempowers the authority of the teacher. Also, uh, if you start allowing everybody to have a voice, we're going to descend into chaos where anybody can just complain about anything when actually what we're trying to do is let people detach from their narratives. So I am curious how we can, within the teaching structure, especially of Zen, try to bring awareness on how the, especially residential centers, because a lot of people are residential, but even not, how we can create this environment where people are allowed to speak and yet still get the teaching. People are empowered, yet we still respect the power of the teacher, because we are coming from, as you said, this very hierarchical tradition where we do respect our elders. So just some comments on that, please help. Please. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. uh, uh, did you want to come? I, I really want to appreciate what you said, and I was so um, stimulated also by what, by what Grace said. And I, I'm going to just actually take this back into ethics and, and uh, go back to what Christopher was talking about. It touched me very much. The paradox that you were talking about, this idealization of the teacher, which I think, I agree, it's, it, we don't want to demonize idealization, it, it, there's a function there. Um, but I learn a lot from my own personal experience, and I was hesitating about whether to bring this in, but I thought, what the heck. Uh, I, in Boundless Way Zen, which Josh and I are, uh, were two of the guiding teachers, we've learned so deeply from our own paradoxically painful experiences with uh, hierarchical Zen organizations. Uh, we're still flawed because we're human, and that's never gonna go away. 
but I myself had a teacher who I absolutely adored, idealized, he, you know, heaven and earth. I mean, it, and he used that in a way that wasn't uh, skillful. So he actually uh, seduced me, tried to seduce me sexually. I still wear that as a badge of honor that I didn't give into it. But it was the most confusing thing because I loved Zen so much and I conflated Buddhist practice with him. So my survival of that was really important because I got to see um, through the pain of it. I'm not dismissing, it was so awful. I thought Zen, screw Zen was lucky but enough to, what's that? You did screw that. Well, clearly not <laughs> ultimately, but I had my little, my little period, right? Um, and then in solving the paradox of this, we came up with this, these ethical guidelines that, are, that very much address what you're talking about. We want to keep the hierarchy, but we don't want it to be unquestioned. I think there's a, a, a very important uh, usefulness of hierarchy as long as that, there's that, I love that phrase you used, feedback loop, right? So there's a, a tremendous feedback loop wh which is based on this horrible learning from people with enormous blind spots. I mean, our blind spots are probably just as big, but because we don't see them, I can't talk about them. Uh, but, but the four of us, uh, the four guiding teachers, have, have a feedback loop. The senior students have a feedback loop, and anybody can come to this, uh, this rec reconciliation committee and, and name these things. So through, I, I, wanna, I guess I, I wanted to bring it in because I wanted to say that on some level, our fear of these transgressions uh, is, is misplaced. The, the meeting of the transgression through practice. There's an incredible amount of learning that's possible here. And, and, I, I, and I think just naming it, some of the things that we've already named in the realm of ethics in teacher-student and probably in psychoanalysis too, the secret is the secretiveness is where the the, um, the that's the real lack of ethics. Mm -hmm. So I, I want to turn this to to Grace because I know Grace has done a lot of work in this area, a lot of thought. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Um, you know, one of the things you said, Melissa, is there are four guiding teachers, and in your lineage, people are encouraged and to go to the different teachers for instruction. This already is a safeguard against extreme idealization and um, projection. So that's one way to help. A lot has changed um, in 2,500 years in terms of our understanding of educational options. So the Buddha said, I don't want you to do what I do. I want, as my teaching travels, for you to adapt to your culture and your time. And the biggest adaptations we're seeing have to do with process, investing in process, the feedback loops, the meetings, and there can be a non-chaotic way through understanding group dynamics and training people in group dynamics and leading groups on these subjects and through what Josh referred to as the ethical statements, not just writing ethical statements, but having uh, classes so that newcomers who are welcome to centers go through the ethical guidelines and know the rules and know nobody is supposed to hit on you in the first six months of your practice here. And if any teacher hits on you, that's a never. And so you get that and you understand. You, if you want to have a sexual relationship, go to a cowboy bar not a Zen center. So, 
Um, Grace, can I just, I forgot to add one more thing um, yeah. that seems really important here. Yeah. In the middle of my own crisis, I went into psychoanalysis. Uh -huh. <laughs> right? Hallelujah. Um, but I, I think this, this willingness also to, for all the parties to look deeply into what's actually happening is part of that. And I think using examples, teaching by case studies, which we should have classes in case studies of harms that have been done, because what you went through, somebody else doesn't have to go through to have the experience of learning. We should actually talk about and educate people about the harms that have been done, that we have studied, and that have been made public. So we have a lot of work to do in terms of bringing um, the values that uh, Western um, Buddhism can bring, you know, the less hierarchical, more democratic processes, even though we still respect the wisdom of our elders, we can introduce processes. We also have noticed that Buddhism has changed radically in the West because we have a greater majority of teachers and we are examining the issues of the voices. We have committees that are examining the voices of those who are not heard, you know, whether it be gay or disabled people in the community. So all of these things need to be articulated as a process in the same way that that doesn't change instructions for meditation, it doesn't necessarily change Dharma talks, and uh, many of the rituals that we have, we can still maintain and add to for our communities. Good. So Bob, did you still have something? Yeah, okay, and while the, the mic is moving, I just want to mention that this notion of having four teachers is something that we could borrow for psychoanalysis, that, that maybe it would make sense to be in right. uh, an analysis with four analysts simultaneously, is it kind of a, I, I should think this through. I, I love the simultaneous idea because that, you know, takes so much less time. You know, four for, Four for one 10-year analysis, it would be four times as good. But um, I would like to suggest that there's a way that, uh, a sort of a starting point, both for the ethics of Buddhism and for psychoanalysis, that is, in a sense, sort of getting lost in the shuffle, at least to my ear, which is that, why do people become Buddhist? Why do people go into a psychoanalysis? Suffering. It begins with the suffering. And the suffering is a, your personal way of saying, what's wrong? Something's wrong. What can I do better? And immediately, good and bad, the worse and the better, get involved in, uh, in precipitating going to the practice and trying to figure out what's happening. And the curiosity that Robert mentioned, you know, that sense of being able to ask questions, uh, is a desperate attempt to open up a closed system. When we talk about the history of uh, 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 secularism and the bloody battles that that took, you're, you can essentially look at history as a conflict between closed systems, this is the power, this is the way things should be, versus opening or open to change systems um, that are beginning to be different every day. Now, when each of us gets, gets born as a child, in a sense, other people are telling you who you are. To be good, you do what they say you should do. You know, you become that person. Only lo and behold, it doesn't work out so well. Because, you know, what's implicit in this is you have to keep changing. That there has to be a kind of uh, 
openness to the possibility of, of a shifting self, which means that you're, you're selving every day, every moment, instead of becoming or trying to stick with a reified self. But in the same way that the thousand-year Reich wants to last forever um, and be certain and solid, if you, uh, if you shrink that down like a fractal iteration to what it is to be a person, there's that pull to be me, you know, to be invictus, my head is bloody but unbowed, you know, that kind of attitude, um, versus the risk and the anxiety of not knowing who you are or what's going to happen or sort of letting, letting it unfold. And, um, and, but there's a thread in that that I, I think is important too, which is, um, which is the, like the point, uh, one-pointedness of meditation, where there's a sense that through it all, it's not the self that maintains that one-pointedness from one cell state to another, there is like a family resemblance between me yesterday and me today. There's also a difference, right? But the important holding together part is, uh, is sticking with it, is sort of writing, writing through the change. Um, and all of that I think people have touched on in various ways. And this one-pointedness is one mode, one form of dharma practice, and even one form of meditation practice, but not the only one. And part of relating to this question, so, so, so there's a way that uh, when the impersonal dominates, um, then, then we get this kind of uh, shutting away of, of our uh, humanity. Um, so, so, but there, but, and there is, there is this thing that arises out of one-pointedness, which in an important way is impersonal. But as Dr. Waldinger was, was pointing to earlier, also there's, there's a thing that is very, very intimate. It is deeply, deeply, profoundly personal. Uh, and it includes and must include all of our being of human. A and then w one of the things that, that is also emphasized in, in our school, uh, in addition to this quality that is not about you and to this quality that is deeply about you, there's also one that is interpersonal. And uh, our school, uh, we, you, know, you might have three meetings with, uh, with three different teachers during each of the days of the silent retreat. Uh, in which you're you're showing up interpersonally, and we have and and our dharma talks when we give our presentations are always followed by inter by a dharma dialogue. Uh, so of everyone coming forth as their specific self, everyone refracting the light of the dharma in their way, and, and so and it's guided by the teachers. Um, but but these three modes, the personal, the impersonal, and the interpersonal, are all utterly essential, even for the dharma. Um, oh goodness, so who's been waiting the longest here? I think you have, yeah. Oh, me? Yeah. Oh, and then. So I was thinking of precepts and ethics and um, the idea of creating safety and a consensual container where uh, speech, truth of self and selves and response, taking responsibility for self and community taking responsibility for each other is so important, and I've never heard of the precepts before, but I think in, you know, in many practices and religions, uh, you know, you could find um, some similar things that kind of uh, help to create 
ethics for uh, a society, people living in society together, um, that is necessary for us to feel safe enough to be ourselves and then, you know, to transform in any way that we choose to do. Um, I was also thinking of uh, what Polly said about the uh, problems with psychoanalysis conferences and, you know, what just, my father's a psychiatrist and, um, you know, there, I think there can be so much attachment to ideas and theories and not enough inclusivity in different points of view. I mean, I remember, you know, arguing with my father about different kinds of therapies and different points of view when I was younger. And, you know, I mean, he made me kind of get out of a conference because he thought I was going to be dangerous for me. I did. It was est, you know, and I think that it was good that he did. But I didn't, I didn't appreciate it at the time because he was basically saying, I don't like, you know, you reaching out and doing something different. In the end, he was right. Um, in terms of splitting, uh, I think a lot of splitting happens between therapist and patient. And I think um, often the therapist is idealized and often the, uh, the, the um, therapist is idealized and then the patient becomes less than idealized or the shadow self can really be, you know, projected onto the patient, and I think the more healthy way of, I think the more healthy way of dealing with a therapeutic relationship is to have, you know, each person being on their own journey, and each learning from each other, and for there to be an intersection of things happening that raise consciousness and awareness and intuition and you know, you can talk about theory, you can talk about, you know, whatever these two personalities and persons with their backgrounds do, you know. Um, but, you know, I do think a splitting happens. I also had the experience of my father splitting, you know, being the good therapist out in work and then being a terrible father in certain ways and you know, abusive in certain ways, and you know, showing his shadow side, uh, side to his family. So that's a form of splitting too that I think therapists really need to take responsibility for. Um, so um, you know, there's just some thoughts about you know maybe the ego of the therapist and the need for the therapist to kind of you know, face him or herself and be self-scrutinizing and to get out of, you know, their own idealized way. Um, I think that's really important. Good. Thank you for that. Yeah. Um, I, I wait for the mic, perhaps. I can hear myself, so I think everybody else can hear me. <laughs> I'm, I'm a Jungian analyst, and I, too, am tired very tired of the splitting in psychoanalysis from way back. And I think it's time we started really having a dialogue, which thank you, Polly, we're having a dialogue. The other splitting that I'm tired of is the whole, we go to psychoanalysis to work with the child self and the wounded self and what, whatever, all that finding of that self. And then we go to a spiritual teacher and we work on our spiritual 
essence. And I think we also, which is I like this dialogue, I don't think we need to do that splitting anymore. I mean, that's what Jung was fascinated with mm -hmm. and tried to bring into psychoanalysis. And um, I don't know how that can happen, but I think there is a real splitting um, that creates all kinds of interesting and difficult problems. So, anybody want to comment? Yeah, I've got, a, I've got a comment on this. Uh, I mean, I, I'm not an analyst, but uh, in my clinical practice, I also see a lot of Buddhists. And I'm delighted with the way that we can easily walk back and forth across these domains without it being an issue, you know, whatever seems to make sense. So on the one hand, it is uh, a, a division that doesn't need to be preserved because it's artificial. On the other hand, uh, both psychoanalysis and Buddhism have uh, a certain integrity in and of themselves, and to start to blur them is to sort of blur their, their fundamental operating principles and to possibly uh, undermine them both. So I think we also want to be too careful about uh, not respecting the integrity and autonomy of each of those systems with its own purposes and its own methods. But just an opinion, yeah. Yeah, um, thank you very much for the comment. Um, I, I think that the, the issue for psychoanalysis is not that people have to agree, but that they have to understand and respect that there is another point of view and there are reasons why people hold it, try to understand it, just like we do with patients, okay? And so I think if we do that, it enriches all sides. And I, I agree with Paul. It's not like you're going to compromise your theory. You know, if you have a theory and you believe in it, that's fine. But understand that all theories have their flaws, right? I can debunk any of the theories that I use. I use almost every psychoanalytic theory I can think of, and I could debunk every one of them in a certain respect. But they all have a certain gold in them that I mine and that I try to utilize. That's the perspective I would like to see psychoanalysis have. And um, so I, I, one of the things I just want to point out is that Almost every time I speak and talk about my ideas about psychoanalytic practice, there is a Jungian or two in the audience or more, and they always say, this is so like Jung. <laughs> and that's how Polly and I connected, because oh, the things I say come from a different theoretical perspective, but it ends up like the way they talk about Jung. And it always shocked me, because I read Jung in graduate school, I thought, it's all very interesting, but it's got nothing to do with anything I can use in the clinical process, you know? It's all this nice theory about, you know, uh, religion and symbols and all these things, but, you know, it's not something I'm ever going to use. And then these Jungians, like Polly, show me, in reading Polly, how much is similar to, in contemporary Jungian theory, and the way they think about things, how similar it is to the way I think. I think that's something that we all should uh, appreciate. Specifically address her question about the blurring or the coming together. One of the ethical um, issues uh, in bringing them together is you do not want to have your therapist and your spiritual teacher be the same person. So that's an ethical boundary right there. Um, there's only a few uh, Buddhist teachers that I know of who actually also take patients or clients from people that they see. But again, it's too many eggs in one basket, just like I was describing in the Buddhist residential communities. So even though one might be able to use meditation within a session or somehow refer to these things, one should be referring the patient to a different teacher or, or practice group. 
Not always possible in a small town, however. No. Where there are often not those options. Uh, just to, to piggyback on that, um, the thing that uh, I think is the too many eggs in one basket uh, is the, the idealization issue that comes up. And um, the two, in general, in analysis, we analyze the idealization. You cannot analyze it all, though, because we don't take people into our kitchens afterwards, you know. I mean, we can analyze to a point, but we're still sitting there in the consulting room with the oriental rug. And so, you know, it doesn't all dissolve. Um, however, that approach to analyzing the idealization really doesn't take place per se in Buddhist teaching. There's a different way of deconstructing. It's really a different method. But, but I, think, I think also we need to be able to talk about spiritual issues in therapy. Um, I, I agree with all of that. What I'm concerned about is I get clients who are having dreams and having experiences on different levels. And I need to know what level I'm dealing with because um, some people come in with tremendous trauma and the spiritual aspects, uh, Zenshin was talking about this yesterday, the spiritual aspect and the trauma have become so intertwined and it's about unraveling that and knowing what we're dealing with so that we don't just send them and put them on drugs if that's not what's appropriate, for example. Thanks. So I agree and appreciate many of the things that people have been talking about. I'd like to add another dimension to it, perhaps. Um, if we ask the question, why do people break ethics in the first place, particularly within a Buddhist context, um, what's that dynamic? And I think there's a lot that we don't understand in terms of what happens with practice, especially intensive forms of practice, and the unconscious. And I think that's a lot where psychoanalytic approach, understanding the Western unconscious has a lot to offer. And so particularly where we see teachers acting in really such unethical and profoundly hurtful ways, Unless we understand the unconscious more clearly in terms of practice, uh, we won't really get to the bottom of these issues. Sometimes it's complicated. One of the things I like about the Buddhist system is that it kind of reduces everything to one of three motives. And I can remember that, you know, I easily remember it. And I've seen a number of people in therapy, men who have come in because they were caught cheating on their wives and they had to get into therapy to figure out why did they do it. And they have a hard time crafting a story because it often comes down to the following, I wanted to. Yeah. 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 Uh, you know, I, I think that um, the, I, I can't. I can't really speak to the transgressions in the in the Buddhist tradition. I, I know Grace has enlightened me about a great deal of it, and it destroyed my idealization of Zen forever. Um, <laughs> I, I I know that it happens in psychoanalysis because there's an insufficient. Uh, analysis, uh, not in every case, but in many cases, an insufficient analysis of the power dynamics of the situation. Uh, it is, you know, what is it that produces the kind of transgressions between patient and analyst? In almost every case, when you, know, you, you talk to the analyst, you see somebody who's getting, there's an intimacy in, in the relationship, which, which we all have, and you have an intimacy with somebody, you get an erotic um, um, 
feeling uh, for the other person, and then it becomes a question of understanding what that is as opposed to acting on it, right? And if there's an insufficient analysis of the power dynamics, that this is about power, and it should be analyzed, and if you don't do that, then there is the danger of it being enacted, and, and that's what often happens in the unfortunately very frequent cases of, of sexual transgressions. We had a question, so this will be our last question, I think, our last comment. Hi, my name's Chrissy. Um, some of it has been addressed already, and I already put my note away, but um, essentially what I am curious about and what draws me to this conference is, I think um, Buddhism is really about um, observing the mind and not identifying with the mind and um, having that space or that separation and witnessing the mind and with that we come more into presence and more into a sense of being. Whereas therapy is much more in the mind. You know, identification with the mind and the story and the content. And so they seem separate and I see how they overlap but it's, I, I guess I'm not sure how they, how to work with them together or if they are just separate. So that's my question. <laughs> it's, it's actually enormous. Yeah. It's an enormous question. I, and I'm going to do a bit of a dodge because um, we have a, a one minute left. I think we probably... Mel, Mel you, wanted, you had a comment on that? Well, I just wanted to say, you know, and I hope it, it doesn't come across as defensive, but I think the way many of us practice analysis, we really are oriented to both dimensions both the reflection on the mind and the entering as deeply as possible the principles in which the mind is organized. We're doing both. I do think that people in the Buddhist tradition have developed capacities and techniques and philosophy for that deep internal meditation that goes beyond in many cases, way beyond what we've developed in psychoanalysis. I think that on the other side, the what the Buddhist tradition, at least as far as I understand it, has not focused on as much as we have is the, the relational dimensions of mind, and for me, the conflictual, conflictual historical relational dimensions, but very beautifully developed that internal ser search and when I hear um, Buddhist talk, I mean, I'm deeply envious of that, of that capacity. And I mean envious, I hope, in a, in, a good, in a good sense. I think we need to incorporate that um, much more profoundly in, in psychoanalysis. When I heard Chris talking uh, before about um, the hist history of, of Buddhist thought, and in at least Asian Buddhist thought, and the gradual introduction more and more of the dimension of society and history and conflict, that that's the, the clearly sounded like in a very broad, much broader sense, that was the direction of development for Buddhist thought. Um, I'll just, I'll stop now. Thank you. Well, before we break, just a couple of very brief things. First, I just want to thank the panelists and all of you for really a wonderful morning. It's been a real pleasure.